everyone, and welcome to the Oklahoma Songwriters Podcast, where each week we find out just what makes our Oklahoma songwriters tick. If you've ever been interested in the process of how songs get written, or if you're a songwriter looking for tips and inspiration, then you are in the right place. I do one-on-one interviews with your favorite Oklahoma artists and dig into why and how they write their music. I'm your host, Jared Voluch, and I'm very, very happy you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to the Oklahoma Songwriters Podcast. I am Jared Veluch, and today we have Marco Teo with us. And how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me out. Oh, yeah. Thank you for coming on out. This will be fun. Um, So you just got back from Nashville. I did. I went out there with uh, my cousin, Edgar Cruz, and his wife, Danielle, and my friend, Lori Ferguson. And we went to the Chet Atkins Appreciation Society convention. They don't call it a festival. I don't know why. But it's uh, some of the best finger stylists in the world are there. People from England, Australia, Italy, Japan. Uh, Tommy Emmanuel is one of the headliners. Awesome. Tom Bresch is uh, one of the headliners. And he is uh, an established finger stylist. I was a little bit out of my element because I'm a flat picker. Oh, I, I, use a, I use a guitar pick. But what a what a blast! Yeah, I bet nice that road was trip. Fun. Yeah, awesome. How long uh, how long were y'all out there? We left on uh, a Monday morning and went to uh, Memphis for a couple of days, and then we were at the festival by Wednesday. That's awesome. And I just got back on. I got back to work on Tuesday of of last week. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm, I'm pretty much a musician, but I also have a day job, and I'm a food broker. Ah, yeah. Like most of us, we always have to have some it's kind of day job. <laughs> really hard for me to get health insurance if I don't have a job. Yeah, I understand that completely. That's yeah. where I'm at right now. Um, well, shoot, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself. I was born in Oklahoma City, but I grew up in Edmond. Um, would have graduated high school in 81 had I graduated. I got kicked out and uh, have pretty much always been into music. I was in school band starting in sixth grade. I think in fifth grade I started piano lessons. Okay. I didn't pick up the guitar until I was about 16 or 17. Yeah, see, I'm in that same boat. I played saxophone all the way through high school. Yep. In the school band. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good background (laughs) in music. I can read music, but I don't read music much on the guitar. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like reading piano music, sheet music. It's just, it's a lot that they throw at you at, yep. one, at any given moment instead of just reading a melody of yeah, notes yeah. in succession. But yeah, I completely understand that. I spent some time living in the Rocky Mountain area in the 80s in Boulder, Colorado. Um, came back in the late 80s, early 90s to Oklahoma City. And uh, I never really meant to stay here. I never really <laughs> felt that at home here. Yeah. And uh, I don't, you know, I'm not religious and this is a pretty religious state. I'm not very conservative and this is a pretty conservative state. Yeah. And uh, I'm not much of a flag waver and this is a very, you know, military supporting state. We have a lot of bases here. Yeah, we do. So I think there's seven. I've never sat down and thought about that. Yeah, you know, but artists tend to be 
if everything was okay and if you felt completely sanguine about everything and if you felt completely comfortable, there would be no art. Yeah, and I feel like it kind of drives our community together, mm -hmm. like all the artists, because it's a... Uh, because it is a very at odds state with that kind of um, just that type of person that the artist community, that tendencies to fall on the left side and all these things like it pushes people together because they feel like that's a smaller community or whatever. Yeah. And it's strange too, because if you consider all of the talented musicians, songwriters, dancers, artists that have come out of Oklahoma, it's, it's mind boggling for a state this small the impact that Oklahoma has on the music industry over the last 75 years, 80 years is, is profound. You know, there's, there's Woody, of course. Oh, yeah. um, one of you know, the first uh, American Indian ballet dancer. Uh, we have uh, the Tulsa crowd, which comprises um, J.J. Kale, the Tractors, the, all those guys, Leon Russell, Kentner, and if you look on a lot of people's records, you'll find Oklahomans involved all across the line. And uh, Leon Russell um, was almost a one-man music industry himself. Hmm. He played, the first time I think he was on a nationally recognized record is he was on, he played piano on Strangers in the Night, which was a hit back in 59, yeah. I think. So... That's cool. Yeah, I I've had several songwriters on here, um, but not any with as much kind of, you seem to have a lot of uh, history. Yeah, I kind of. In your mind. I kind of <laughs> listen to, it. I listen to that stuff and just history in general. Yeah. Um, there are some, there are some interesting songwriting uh, factions in Oklahoma City uh, and the same in Tulsa, Stillwater, Tahlequah, so every little area seems to have uh, some songwriters and a whole musical style that kind of uh, that kind of goes with that place. Obviously, Stillwater. The probably the people we're thinking about there would be uh, the um, Brad Piccolo and John Cooper and Ben mm -hmm. Hahn for the you know the Rangers. But uh, Monica Taylor lives in Perkins, which is right outside of Stillwater. Okay. Cushing, you've got uh, Rick Riley and Gene Collier. Gene Collier wrote the song The Boys from Oklahoma, which uh, a Yukon band called uh, Cross Canadian Ragweed had a hit with, and so did Stoney, Stoney LaRue. Mm -hmm. um, Oklahoma City obviously has a lot of, I mean, I've been uh, going to a blues night with a guy named Mike Sadawake, and he is Carter Sampson's guitar player. She's a... That's uh, why I recognize yeah. that name. Yeah. And... Uh, it's a side of him I just didn't know, and I guess he didn't know that about me when I showed up with an electric guitar. Um, in Midwest City, one of my favorite songwriters is a guy named Joe Baxter. I've heard that name. Yeah, he's pretty important Oklahoma songwriter, yeah. and the only people that would agree with me are other Oklahoma songwriters. Yeah. You know, John Fulbright praised him, Parker Millsap, Carter, uh, Ask the Red Dirt Rangers, they'll, they'll, they love the guy. And uh, he just quietly continues to put out record after record. And we're going to get started on another one. He's, he's, he's involved in recording one now, and he's going to tap me to be one of the musicians on the record. So, awesome. Yeah. And if you're listeners, just check him out. You can find him online. 
his records are kind of low key. He doesn't spend a lot of money on them. He doesn't do a lot of post-production. He doesn't do a lot of cuts or overdubs. Kind of what you see is what you get. And it's very similar to what you get when you see him live. And he has one of the most convincing and authentic Oklahoma uh, narrative voices that I've heard. He's pure Oklahoma. Awesome. I'll actually make sure that I check him out myself. I love that. Um, this is why I love, I'm trying to bring on as many people that I don't know yeah. as possible because I'm getting so much more information. I've lived in Oklahoma my entire life, played music my entire life, written music for... I had no idea who you were. Well, yeah. So like it's, and this is kind of my one of my opportunities to not only give something back to our state, but also an opportunity for me to just meet people that, and learn because I'm, I'm very much so a, I'm a horrible student in the aspect of actually diving in and learning a lot of things myself, but through spoken word, through, through other musicians, the people that I meet, I'm very, very communicative in that aspect. And I love learning through that way. And so this is, this is really a treat for me. Well, you read something it may stick, it may not. Someone tells you, go see this band. You go, oh, I better go see him. Oh, yeah. R- Joe's got a rock and roll band. I was the original guitar player in the 80s, 90s. I'd never played electric guitar in a band before at that time. And uh, the band was called the Regular Joes. I left to go hitchhike around Southeast Asia for a while. Another guy came and played guitar. Um, since then, the band broke up, but the original bass player died, a guy named Dub Vandenberg. And so I said, well, he said, we're going to get the band back together. And I said, good luck getting dub. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty, that's a serious one-way ticket, you know. But uh, I said, I'll play bass. Randy plays guitar. We got Bill on drums. He's out of uh, Ada. And so it's the regular Joes. And we're doing a show on the 17th at the Blue Door. All ori- almost all original Oklahoma rock. And um, it's not a labor of money. Joe is getting on in years. He's not as tough as he used to be. He's got some health issues as we all probably do as we get older. And he doesn't want to do, you know, music four nights a week at some dive bar. Uh, But we are getting some shows at some real listening type places. And uh, Greg at the Blue Door has been very supportive. So we're going to do that show on the 17th. We're working on some other shows. But if your audience is, if this comes out before then, if your audience is out there, come on to the Blue Door on the 17th. It's 20 bucks and buy a record. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to try and make, I'll make sure that this episode gets out before that so they can, anybody that can hear it will. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so what, okay, you've talked a little bit about your your musical background and some of the things that you've done, but like, where did it all start? Like, when did you start playing music? Well, in school, obviously in piano, but I... Uh, I never was really moved to push myself into that. Uh, I did it. In some cases, it was easy for me. I didn't have to practice. And that's the danger of talent. If you have some talent, you think it's easy. Uh, And so that that means I didn't take it very seriously. About the time I was 17, 16 or 17, I got a guitar. And uh, I I guess I was about 16. And uh, I started playing the guitar, and, and I picked it up in a basic way pretty easily. Um, then in about, 
82, I moved to Colorado and I met a banjo player and songwriter named Kane Hollins. He lives in Longmont now. And he was on my latest Cedar release. I flew him down to play banjo. He's on my CD as well. And we hitchhiked around the country uh, as a, a duo called the Fast Grass Rangers. Nice. We dressed up in cowboy clothes. Um, sometimes we had an old beat up VW van that I had to push to get going. I and, that. uh, yeah, we just, uh, and, but most of the time we hitchhiked, we jumped some trains, we traveled all over the Western United States, all over the Rockies. Uh, we'd walk into a bar and say, you guys have a band tonight? Nope, we don't. Well, do you want one? So half the time, I mean, we're hitchhiking. So 20 bucks goes a long way when you're doing that. Yeah. And we covered a lot of ground over three or four different trips. And that's when I became serious about playing the guitar. It was a completely different style of music. I really liked Kane. I really liked, he became my best friend. He still is. And I wanted to hang out with him, so I learned his music. And I threw myself into bluegrass. And after about four or five years, I became pretty conversant in bluegrass. And I still fall back on that. When someone says, take it, Marco, I pretty much grab a bluegrass lick. That's awesome. And that's when I kind of got serious. Yeah. He he also showed me a whole different world of songwriting and musicianship and instrumentals that I didn't know existed. And that was probably my first foray into really liking the music that most people don't know about. Yeah. And looking upon something that is a huge success uh, with a lot of dubiety. If everybody likes it, how can it be any good? That that was the attitude I had. I can get that. I've I've moderated that a little bit. Anyway, when I came back in, I, I keep saying 89, but I, it, I, I don't pay attention to dates and stuff. Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, I was still drinking a lot back then and doing a lot of drugs. I don't do any of that anymore. But uh, well, we actually have that in common. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got sober in 1990, on February 15th. But um, so... Some of that stuff that happened before, I don't have the timeline completely perfect, and I apologize, but I bet Jerry Garcia would have said the same thing. Mm, Um, But when I got back here, now, I mean, to give you an idea, it seems like I'm more comfortable approaching somebody or having them approach me and say, this is a completely different thing that you, from what you've been doing, would you like to jump in? And I'll usually say, yeah, I'm going to give that a try. And so most recently, my cousin uh, is a pretty famous guitar player. His name is Edgar Cruz. He's famous in Oklahoma. He's not unfamous in Nashville. Um, We started working together just kind of on a fluke, me and a singer named Jeff Noakes. And uh, he would ask me, could you learn this guitar part? Sure. So pretty soon I was learning stuff on his records to play with him on stage. I'm not a Spanish guitar player at all, but uh, that kind of challenge really made it fun for me. And uh, in turn, Edgar is now becoming a singer. You know, he's he's singing. And, and even when he's not playing with us, he'll go do a show and he brings a mic now and he'll, he's got 10 or 15 songs he likes to sing. So... He's helping me with my guitar playing. The most important thing Edgar taught me is uh, he makes mistakes all the time. I do too. He doesn't care. Not one bit. It doesn't bother him in the least if he screws up. 
And it just never occurred to me that you could have that attitude. Oh yeah. So it's just, I mean, I've seen him, I've seen him come up to a red light in his car. I mean, a, a green light, it turns yellow. He's still 25 yards from the intersection and he just keeps going and doesn't speed up. Just, <laughs> so a very non, he's not a, he's not a stressed out guy. Yeah. I'm not used to that with musicians. Usually we're a lot of work. We're a mm -hmm. lot of, you know. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Everybody who gets off stage is usually pretty bummed, regardless of how good the show went. <laughs> in, oh, yeah. In our, in our circles, I've seen that so How'd you many do? Times. Oh, it was terrible. Really? Yeah. The audience said they loved it. Well, they're idiots. You yeah, know? They're, they're, they weren't listening for yeah. what I was doing. Yeah, I understand that completely. That's a, It's a mindset that I've embraced and still am working on. But uh, I definitely remember the first times like performing when I was, uh, I mean, in high school, I started writing songs and I remember just every moment of every performance tearing myself apart. And then years and years later, I finally came to this place of when have I ever played a show where I didn't make a mistake? When have you ever done anything and not messed it up in some form or fashion? And it's like, you just keep going. You don't have to like, tear yourself to pieces every time. I think people that come from the classical world are more likely to have that. So, I, you know, school orchestra, that did that to me, you know, but uh, part of it's just my makeup, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not very easy on myself. Yeah. Now, you were talking about your, uh, was it your, the, your best friend, the banjo player? Kane Hollins. Kane Hollins. Is he the one that you were saying he uh, he's the one that kind of got you writing music? Or no, that was someone else. Uh, it's a guy named John Dawson. John Dawson. We had a Red Dirt band before anybody knew what Red Dirt was. And we started about 97. And the band was called the Suburbillies. <laughs> it's a good name. I like that. Suburban Hillbillies. However, when people saw the name, they said either Suburbillies or Superbillies. They just couldn't get what uh, suburban is, yeah. yeah. And uh, there was a lot of confusion about the name. But John Dawson had been writing songs. He's still a writer. He lives uh, on the south side of Oklahoma City. And uh, he'd been writing songs. And um, I just joined him at Cock of the Walk on a Tuesday night one night. Uh, they used to do music there. And I played along on some of his songs. And he was, he was frankly way below me musicianship-wise performance-wise, polish-wise, everything. And people said, well, why are you, why are you working with this guy? Because he was new at it back then. But he was a songwriter, and uh, it was he, he actually inspired me to start writing songs. My songs aren't near as uh, evolved as his are. He's a very good songwriter. And uh, you, can see, you can find his music, you know, out there. We released one record called The Suburbillies, Suburban, still available somewhere out there, and I have some copies too. And uh, we were about to re release our second record, and it was finally the record I wanted to release as a producer in the studio. I've done some production. I finally had, I had a couple of good songs on there that I'd written. I had two songs that I'd written on the first record, my first two songs, yeah. and I co-wrote two of them with him. Then we co-wrote a few songs, and I wrote two or three more originals uh, for the second record. But it was about that time that John decided he didn't want to do this anymore. 
I don't think he liked... I had a much heavier hand in the production of the record and the sound of the band because I knew what to do. And John did not have any of those chops as a producer, but he knew what he wanted it to sound like. And the music didn't sound like what he wanted it to sound like. He didn't know how to get to the sound in his head from there to the stuff sounding like he wanted. And without a kind of an ability to intellectualize everything I just said. He just said, I'm done. And I think for about five years, he went to work for the Social Security Administration for the state of Oklahoma in the disability section. And I think for about five years, he didn't play at all. <laughs> he just went away. Yeah. And uh, he's back playing now. I invested a lot of time, money, effort, and blood into that band. And and, and I got really depressed when the band fell apart. Um because I thought we were very good. I, th I still think we were a good band. We had trouble keeping personnel because pro musicians have to make a certain amount of money per show. If you're an original band, you don't know if your original music is going to make that kind of money. And it was, it was difficult for a guy like John because he was the leader of the band. It was his vision. It was difficult for people you know, other pros that I'd worked with in Oklahoma City in cover bands for them to take orders from John because he would have been the least experienced person in the band telling somebody who'd been playing drums for 20 years what to play or bass or whatever. I understand the feeling behind that. On the other hand, John, that was John's vision. Right. So, you know, if... And I've... <laughs> I was in the studio laying down some original tracks for, for the second record, and I had a drummer in there, a good, well-known Oklahoma drummer, laying tracks for me. And I said, no, I, I don't want that. I want this. I want you to do, you know, this beat and break here, and then that goes into a slow march, 4-4 four, four march. And I continually got argued with by the guy I was hiring to play drums on my project. Hmm. Well, you wouldn't do that there. That's not appropriate there. Um but that happened to John a lot more than it happened to me. Right. Uh, also, I'm a little more intimidating in the studio than John is, I think. And people tend to do what I tell them to do. Yeah. Well, and confidence goes a long way. If, you, if you're very direct, people usually respond to that as well. Yeah. And I, I can kind of feel that from you in a, in a positive way. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, uh, like you know what you want and you communicate it well. well. I'm not as much of a dick as I used to be either. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I have, my, <laughs> have my moments, but I'm a, lot, I'm a lot easier to work with now than I was back then. Yeah, I guess we're all continually growing, sure. too. I mean, everything changes over time. You know what's weird is I never expected to be 56 <laughs> and, and, to, and, and to look and say, well, I'm a better guitar player. I'm a better songwriter. I'm a better singer than I was last year. I, I, I always thought you'd practice real hard, and by the time you're 25, that's where you are, and you're that's already you're good, now. and you don't have to, you know. And I'm a way better singer than I was five years ago. I'm a better songwriter than I was five years ago. I'm a better guitar player, certainly a better guitar player. I'm definitely a better bass player than I was. And I didn't expect that, and that delights the hell out of me. Yeah. That's a delightful thing to find out. That was one of the things that always kept me interested in music. Is I, uh, My father was a big-time athlete, and in high school, he wanted me to be a football player. He wanted me to do wrestling, all these things. And I never touched it. I uh, I played one season of football in middle school, 
because I started getting into music and I started to see how I'm a small guy. Yeah. I'm five foot six and I knew I was never going to be professional anything athletic wise. Not even, not even NCAA. Right. I mean, I was just like, this isn't going to happen, but musically I have a very strong aptitude for, and I have an interest in it that wasn't going anywhere and, uh, sticking with that. And then one thing I started to notice is that a lot of my older friends would tell me like, man, it's just, it's a journey that never ends. It's something you can do forever. It doesn't matter. There's no, there is no 56 year old, like, oh, I still like to practice my football drills. Like, I mean, (laughs) we're going out and running the tires. uh. Right. You know I mean? That's not happening really. You can work on your health certainly at any point in your life. But as far as like practicing your skills or practicing your whatever, the 440 or whatever, like the the sprints they do and all this stuff. I mean, you're not going to be doing that. But musically, you can do that forever. And even in all the studies I've seen about people that gain um, arthritis in their hands, if Mm -hmm. you just don't stop moving your hands, then you're going to be able to keep playing. I mean... At some point, you break down a little bit. Of course, of course. I remember hearing an interview with Doc Watson when he was 77. And he's a hero of mine. And they said, are are you still able to pick now that you're... He goes, well, I, I hear myself dropping a few more notes now than I used to, but... He didn't stop. He didn't stop playing. And uh, Edgar taught me another thing. We did a performance where we just had an incredible audience. We made a crap load in tips at the Paseo Arts Festival. Awesome. And one of our showstoppers is Devil Went Down to Georgia. We played that song, and I play the fiddle parts on the guitar because I'm a flat picker. And I, I missed a lot of notes, and I was slightly out of time on one of the harder parts. And I was really down on myself for that. And Edgar went out and talked to people, and they were going, who's that guy playing guitar? Man, that guy's good. And I realized, even if I notice I'm dropping a few notes, or because my I'm getting a little tendonitis here, mm. uh, if that's affecting me, I can tell it. But those people out there can't. And... And frankly, if I'm trying to present a song, especially one I wrote, and I've written the parts for it, um, I can still do everything that I need to do guitar-wise to support that song, even though I wouldn't be able to play that part four times as fast if my arm's hurting. Yeah. It's, it's, this is going to sound strange because I've never said this before, but it's almost detrimental in songwriting and presenting your song in a way that the audience can can uh, have access to, it's almost a detriment to be a virtuoso player because you can rely on the flashy picking mm. to make up for mediocre songwriting. Yeah, I can see that completely. Some of my favorite songwriters, the people that I consider to be the strongest they play, they pretty much stick to that four chord diagram and they don't do a lot of flash and it just blows my mind how they can, but I'm engaged the entire time and listening to their story and listening to everything. Yeah. And Kurt Cobain is not a great, was not a great guitar player. No. He had good musicians in his band. He had a good vision. He and Dave Grohl were good producers, but he's not a great guitar player. Um, but he... <laughs> He knew exactly what to play to reinforce the song he was singing. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly what to play. And now there's a part in 
Smells like Teen Spirit. It's the opening. Dun, 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 dun. He's playing the bar chord wrong. He's playing it like this, where you where you bar the index finger and bar the third finger mm-hmm. instead of making it like this. Right. And so you can hear the suspended fourth on the uh, on the G string. It doesn't have the major third. It's a fourth, <laughs> and it's wrong. And now when I hear someone cover that song, and they don't play it wrong, it sounds wrong. Right. It's just it's not the right. It's not it, the in in a way that song is better because he was not as good of a guitar player. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> That's beautiful, though. I mean. I- I get mad at that stuff too, (laughs) but yeah, you're absolutely right. I love that. Um, Talking about songwriting, let's talk a little bit about yours. One of the, one of the most interesting things that you sent me back in this info is uh, that songwriting is a chore. (laughs) Okay. I got to come clean with all you songwriting people out there. Um, There are people who are songwriters that write because they have no choice but to write. There are fiction writers that write because they have no choice but to write. And I guarantee you there are guitar players too, you know, jazz musicians, classical musicians. They just, they got to do it. I'm not one of those guys. <laughs> I don't wake up in the I mean, I wake, Here, here's the problem with me. Good vocabulary, uh, good command of the language, able to sift through all those words and phrases and, and uh, everything in my mind to pick out the right thing to say exactly what I want to say. And I've always strived to do that. The problem is you have four lines and a, and a course in songwriting. Right. So I can't, I, I find that, I find that those kind of limitations to be stifling. Whereas other songwriters like the limitation, the the brevity that you have to achieve. And if you're a good songwriter, you look at those, that brevity, and it helps you um, pare down the words that you use so that you can get to exactly what you want to say in exactly the way you want to say it. For me, it's a chore to cut, I mean, I'll give you an example. John Dawson wrote a song one time and the first verse had five lines in it and then the chorus. Then the second verse had three lines and then the chorus. And I said, John, you can't do that. That's wrong. You're screwing it up. It's, that's the, that, that goes against the formula. And I said, why is there only three lines in that verse? He goes, well, that's all I had to say in that verse. And I went, oh. So usually when I'm writing a song, Almost every time I've written a song, I have decided that there's something I want to say and I try to make it fit into a traditional song format. It's not like I'm noodling and I come up with a line that I want to use or that I come up with a guitar riff. I've only done that once, the guitar riff thing, where I had the music before I had the words. Almost every time, motherhood, you mentioned motherhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a clear idea of what I wanted to say. It took a while to get it into the right format. And then I wrote the music for it. And that song nearly wrote itself. I wrote it in probably four hours over two days. And it was exhausting because emotionally it's a horrible song to, I mean, I couldn't even sing it for a few years. 
there was another blues song. It's on the record I'm going to give you today. Uh, I wrote about another guy in my working in the music store. And he would come in and talk about all of the ways that women have harmed him emotionally, taken his money, and all these, you know, uh, endless line of women. Yeah. And um, that's the first time I realized you can write a song about somebody else. <laughs> and I said, really, what happened there? Oh, 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 she took your money and she went out. She didn't come back. And what happened then? And can you make this one rhyme? And uh, <laughs> so basically I got a song from this guy's. And it, that's okay. You gotta be kidding me. Basically, I got a song from this guy's misfortune. And uh, I just put it down into a blues format. And it's one of my most popular songs. And it's kind of funny because the tagline is, uh, Don't want you to walk out of my life. Don't want you to walk out of my life. I want you to run. <laughs> so it's funny. And and on that song, there was a, there was a radio show host named uh, Mike McCarville in Oklahoma City. Uh all through the 90s and the early 2000s. And that was one of the early songs I wrote. And he uh, he used that song at the end of his uh, program or the Red Dirt Rangers, they used to play music in this town. Hmm. Uh, he used those two songs interchangeably. And that's how I heard about the Red Dirt Rangers and that's how they heard about me. But anyway, yeah, I find it a chore. I find I find songwriting to be frustrating and a chore and and sometimes I just knuckle under and have to do it. And it has nothing to do with me striving to be understood and heard and to know there's another person out there that shares my pain or whatever. I just like what it gets you. Mm -hmm. I like being included in a group of songwriters because to me it's freaking voodoo what they're doing. And I, I like to have songs that I can present myself that I wrote and have a completely free hand on how they're done. Yeah. You put your skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah. You I, should put that in a song. <laughs> I feel like you have to do that to become, I don't know, to gain that extra connection and to become one of. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I love that. I'm working on a song right now, and I'm stuck on the course. But, I, I mean, I basically have a story, and... um I don't want to divulge it, but it's a story about a guy who fights all his life, different stages of life. Mm. But he's not an angry man. And uh, I started doing research for this because the guy was born in the 1840s in Ireland. And uh, he gets over here during the Civil War, the American Civil War. And he joins, you know. So basically in Jesuit school or whatever in Ireland, he's fighting Gets over here, he's fighting in a war. You know, maybe he's, after the war, he's fighting with a railroad company that throws human suffrage and lives just in a pit in order to get their railroad built. Maybe he's fighting them, you know. Huh. And and I'm, I'm intrigued with the idea of a guy that is always ready to fight and not angry. Doesn't view it as a, doesn't view it as I'm going to kill that guy. He's just, I'm ready to fight. Maybe after the fight, he buys the guy a drink, you know? So I, I've been stuck on that song. But yeah. if I can get it right, if I can get the song constructed correctly with the right music, it's going to be a very good story song. And I don't have enough story songs. 
Yeah, I love that. I like that you actually are sitting down to do the like researching and trying to build this um, story around your uh, well, own me, research. And me and Dawson wrote a song called Letters to Caroline. And uh, Dawson came up with the idea and his in the entire first verse is his. Uh, writing to you, Caroline, while the rain is pouring down. General's got us resting here tonight, waiting on them Yanks to come around. And then he does the course and then he asked for my help because I know geography really well. And so, you know, I said, well, the, the Blue Ridge Army in Northern Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains right there, Cumberland Gap, uh, mm. Richmond, you know, was where the, you know, the Confederacy had their government. And uh, it worked out real well that, um, and frankly, I think some of the best lines are mine, but I think John Dawson might say some of the best lines were his too. Um, but, uh that kind of attitude of mine, more of an intellectual uh, bent, if you will, helped in the writing of that song. Yeah, it helps so, create that story. Yeah. And on the other hand, uh, motherhood, everything had already happened. I didn't have to research it. I just had to regurgitate it. Yeah. And um, the problem with that song was I, I debuted it when the Suburbillies were playing a big show in Moore, 4th of July, Moore, Oklahoma. And my dad and my sisters were in the audience and I said, we're not doing that song. Mm. So, you know, there was a there was a good 10 years where I couldn't even begin to play that song without crying. Yeah. So maybe I am a songwriter, you know. Wow. But uh, I also have a, uh, the ability, it seems, to write songs that are kind of funny. And two or three of my songs are pretty humorous. And there's something inside me that tells me if I continue to rely on that. I'm a natural comedian. Natural comedians use comedy to cover up. You would not be, you would not strive to walk into a room and make everyone laugh if you didn't have a serious need to make people like you. People who don't care what other people think have no desire to be comedians they're they're self-contained robin williams jim carrey i guarantee you every one of them would say that they were a clown in school that they were always trying to make their parents uh, laugh eddie izzard famously said in an interview and he was crying at the time that he he wanted to make his Deceased mother, every joke he tells, he's making his deceased mother laugh. <laughs> so um, in a way, a, a comedy songwriter, in my mind, and this is probably not true, is, is less of the true artist that someone like Joe Baxter is or Woody Guthrie or, you know, even Billy Joel. Uh, some of his early stuff has got a lot of angst in it. So... I don't know if that's true, but that's just the way I look at it. So I'm trying to move away from comedy, so songs that are funny, um, into songs that are real. And it's really difficult for me to do that. It is. Uh, it's actually, it's hard for me to go to comedy. I yeah. try, I do that sometimes because I, in an effort to, to bond more with the audience in it. Cause comedy, I feel like laughter makes friends faster than anything else, you know, in those moments. Yeah. Um, when, certainly when people can feel your pain, but nine times out of 10, people don't go to listen to music to feel their pain. No, 
Um, no, <laughs> I mean the the '80s new wave era was full of that stuff. Yeah, and the men were androgynous, very feminine looking in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Lots of makeup, good looking guys, but uh, nice quaff, you know. Oh yeah, and and so it was, it it was according to listening to some of them talk, it was so easy for them to get the girl because in that at that time uh, and at that age, men were of you know, 15 to 25 years old were very reluctant to be uh, sensitive, caring, because at least when I, where I grew up, you didn't want anyone to think you were gay. You know, it was a big deal. Yeah. And, like, and, and um, once they were kind of freed to be a little androgynous or a little feminine, uh, it was probably such a change for all the women that were following these bands, even before they got famous, that they probably did quite well with the ladies. Oh, I'm sure. And... Um, for guys like you and me who are not necessarily natural athletes, not 6'2", 210 yeah. pounds, <laughs> um, or in my case, I couldn't afford a Corvette. So I got a Les Paul, and it did the trick in a lot of cases. Um, but if you're thinking about making people laugh, I have to say that um, anytime I've had any kind of success with women, either just on a very simple sexual level, or on a relationship level, uh, a deeper relationship, my sense of humor has always been the top thing. <laughs> if you can make people laugh, they will... They want to be around they you. They want to be around you. And I'm not saying that, like, I go out and set out to make a girl yeah, you don't like have a, me. You don't have yeah. your hitting on women stand-up routine. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going, <laughs> in, oh, there's that girl, watch this. You know, Hey, watch this, fellas. <laughs> and I walk up to her and say... Uh, my dog has no nose. Really? How does he smell? <laughs> Terrible. You know, it's not, it's not that kind of thing. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh. So uh, Kane did my CD release party. I flew him out from Colorado. I sent him the notes. He learned his banjo parts. It was, it was an epic CD release and still probably the most talked about show that they ever did at the Bottle Cap Barn, which is a, a, a private venue. Um, but they're still talking about it. And it was a year and a half ago. But anyway, the first thing... He, I apologize to anybody from Arkansas, but the first thing he did was say, uh, thanks, Marco, for getting me on stage. There are uh, people here from all over the world and Arkansas. <laughs> and then he said, Marco was uh, a good guy. He was born cesarean section. Uh, it's pretty normal, except when he leaves the room, he tends to go out the window. And he just, he just kept on doing that. And, it was, and, and he had the crowd eaten out of his hands. Tall, skinny guy, big mustache, dressed like a, like a movie cowboy from the 30s. And he's a hell of a bluegrass picker, singer. And he was born in Pittsburgh. What are you going to do? Oh, yeah. He chose his own identity, and that's who he is. So he taught me a lot. He t- and he's the smartest guy I know. Nice. He's a scientist. He's a, he's a real liberal guy, but you just don't know it by talking to him. Mm. He doesn't get into political arguments. He's really into uh, into uh, Aikido, and he knows about energy back and forth. And uh, he's taught me he taught me so much about life in general. And uh, I think to myself, we're getting apart. I haven't seen him in a year, and then we get together, and it's like no time has passed. And I'm a lucky guy. I'm lucky to have him as a as a working partner and a friend, Edgar Cruz, Jeff Noakes. 
all of the people, Joe Baxter, uh, all of the people that I get to work with, I never thought I would have that kind, that kind of a rich relationship. And now I just move within bands, you know. To some people, I'm just a lead guitar player. To some people, I'm a, I'm a sound man. Some people know I'm a songwriter, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the fact that I'm playing bass in their band. Right. And I'm perfectly happy to keep that stuff separate. Um, I work with a band called The Vibe Collective. Um, one of the singers in that band is uh, Shelley Phelps, mm. also a great songwriter, also a Oklahoma, famous Oklahoma singer. And uh, sh before I invited her to my CD release, she didn't know I wrote songs. So, according to my people, I have to push myself out forward more because I'm a songwriter now. And that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm working on my second solo album. I'm on a gazillion albums. I played lead on Kinky Slinky stuff. Uh, a couple of churches came into the studio where I worked and did uh, music, and I played lead, sang back up. Uh, but this will be the second disc of original material done in a format that will lend itself to either full band or solo. Um, on my last disc, I did two songs by Joe Baxter. Robert Gruber from the band Kinky Slinky, who they're now in Austria. I go there in the summers and work with them. Uh, he said, well, you're doing Joe's songs. You got to do one of mine. And I said, okay, I'll do this one. He goes, oh, and also do this one. I said, dude, I got to get a few of my own on the record. I got to have some of my songs on the record, okay? Uh, but anyway, um, you were talking about uh, JJ's. Mm, yeah. uh, Casey Cobb is Raina Cobb's husband. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, and he's, he was probably doing sound. He's a mm -hmm. redhead guy walking around with an iPad. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, uh, I did my album there. I'm going to get a hold of him soon. He knows I've got several songs ready, and I'm going to start laying down the tracks. So I hope to have it ready in about a year, but, you know, i got a full work schedule and a day job. I play in three bands, and I play with the Brave Amigos, which is Edgar Cruz's trio. And I play solo. And Oof. sometimes I got to have time to get out in the woods and go camping and bushcrafting. Yeah. Uh, so it it's just going to take me a year. That's all there is to it. I understand that. You're a busy guy. That's awesome, though. It's good to stay busy. Um, so I just I know we're kind of winding down because you have some places you got to be. but uh, well, That's why I'm talking fast. <laughs> right. So I wanted to just ask real quick, What's some advice that you would try to offer up to any songwriters out there, people that are just trying to do this? Okay, I was thinking about that. Um, there used to be a place in Bethany called Java 39. Mm, yeah. And there's a singer-songwriter named Catherine Fuller. And older than me, um, she, a middle-aged woman, probably had some kind of career in something besides music. And I heard her do a few of her own songs. And she was a little unsure on stage. And when she got off, I, I didn't realize I said this, but she said, uh, she came to me later. But I said, um, do you play out much? You go out and do this? She said, no. I said, well, you ought to. You should. You know, it's good stuff. And then I walked off and did something else. Had a cup of coffee. I didn't. I wouldn't have remembered except two years later, she came up to me and said, do you remember me? And I said, well, yeah, the Java 39. And you also played a show at Herland and do this. And she said, yeah, I, um, I have to thank you because it was, 
you asked me if I get out and do this stuff. And I said, no. And you said, you should. And in her eyes, I was, you know, up here as some kind of established professional. And she took that to heart. And now she's doing a lot of shows and, and she's showcasing her own music. Um, so this is a message to the established songwriters out there or the established musicians or whatever. You never know how something you say or do is going to affect the people that are coming up or the people that look up to you. It would have been easy for me to say something flippant and slightly insulting just to get a laugh. It would have been easy for me to dismiss her out of hand. And if I did that, she might not be out there playing her own shows now. I mean, it's so for you, you know, new songwriters that are wanting to get into this and you feel the need to write. Um, Joe Baxter would say, you need to write, just write. Maybe get up in the morning, do 30 minutes of free writing. Um, but you cannot be, a, I mean, you can be afraid to go out and do your own songs, but you can't let that stop you. Just go out and do your own songs. Um, got to work with a pretty famous guy in Nashville named Anson McLean. I don't know if you know who he is. Look him up. He's a great songwriter. Um, he's the, uh, I believe his band is called the Trailer Park Troubadours. Oh, nice. And uh, not to be confused with the Turnpike Troubadours, <laughs> right. Thomas Trapp's band. Uh, but um, he, he got into a place where he was not writing very much. He didn't feel very inspired. And he has a dozen I mean, he is a prolific songwriter with a great uh, narrative, a great sense of humor, can write a funny song and then a song that'll rip your heart out. He's a, he's a good songwriter and a very nice guy. And uh, he got into a place where he was, he'd plateaued. He wasn't interested in writing songs. Mm. And somebody talked to him and go into a songwriter night. Now we have those here. Java 39 had one. I went to it a few times. Um, other places do. I'm sure there are other places do. And I think the thing they do at JJ's Alley on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights, yeah, I think, the is... Yeah, Sunday night is the Seventh Day Rebellion crew right. of all the songwriters. Yeah, so they bring in, you know, maybe somebody who hasn't been up there, they mm -hmm. get up there. Um, in Nashville, it's a it's a bigger deal because that song is built, that place is built around songwriting. Yeah. So maybe you get one or two songs. You get there at six, you sign up, and there's going to be straight songwriting music until midnight. Just everybody's there. And he started going. He went for a few weeks and he said that it completely re-energized him watching these young people and not necessarily young people, new people. Some of them were middle-aged and older than me. Right. And they would get up there and nervously try to present the story they were trying to tell. And then other people didn't really care what that guy was doing. I'm just waiting my turn. They were, they were more veterans of the songwriter's night. And he actually got a couple of good songs out of the songwriter's night. And, and uh, so I would also say to you songwriters, it's okay to be afraid. I mean, humans are wired to run on fear. That's why we run from bears. However, um, you, can, you can control that and you can uh, refuse to be animated by fear. And you can get up and do your songs. And I don't care how bad you are that first time you get up or the 20th time you get up or the 100th time you get up. Somebody out there is going to be worse. Everybody's going to have a bad night. You have to get up and do your songs. And um, 
Joe Baxter would probably say, learn the song. He'd say, learn the dang song before you do it. Joe Baxter, although I'm probably a much more gifted musician than he is, he is very solid. And when he goes out to perform a song, he knows it up and down. Hmm. And his timing is good. He, uh, so Joe Baxter would say, learn the song before you go up. Just if you know it so well, you can do it in your sleep, you will have less chance of making a mistake, which means that you can concentrate more on putting the amount of emotion that you're trying to put into the song and your voice. Because it's not just the words and the music that support the story you're trying to sell or tell, I should say tell. <laughs> it's the, you, your voice can convey that too, just the quality of the timbre of your voice. And if you don't believe that, go listen to Hank Williams. Listen to Love Sick Blues. Not my cup of tea. I love Hank Williams, but I, you know, I, don't, I don't reach for a Hank Williams song. I don't like to sit there and be miserable about yeah. songs. But, <laughs> but um, if you read the words, you go, this is a sad song. But when you hear Hank Williams sing one of his sad songs, there is so much hurt and heartache in the quality of his voice. It's, yeah. it's, it's visceral. So if you know your song up and down, if you can do, or whatever, the album you're doing, if you can do that without thinking, you are free to let the emotions creep into your voice. So get out there and do it. Um, continue writing. And uh, this is the most important thing, <laughs> at least at the beginning. If you're trying to shop your album, shop your album in Nashville or LA, this is not going to work. But it just doesn't matter what other people think of your song. It just does not matter. It is not even a, it's not even an issue. If you ask somebody, what do you think of this song? That person might say, well, I thought it was kind of shallow. I didn't like it. I don't understand what you're trying to say. That person may have uh, been balled out by his boss. He might be fighting with his wife. His gout might be acting up. There is no way to gauge the quality of your work by how another flawed human being reacts to it. If you, if you have an audience of one person that likes it, that's enough to continue on. And real songwriters will say, well, I don't need an audience. In fact, Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut was saying that he met a painter and the painter said, I don't need people to like my paintings. I just need the museum owner, the guy that I paint for, to say, good. And Vonnegut said something like, yeah, come to think of it, if I write a story and the only person that likes it is my editor, I'm happy. Hmm. So don't worry about what people think. Get out there and write. And everyone says this, write about what you know. What if you don't know anything? You know, what if, I think it was it wasn't Bronte. It was a poet. I can't, uh, Emma Dickinson. Um, Emily Dickinson? Yeah. The poet. She was a shut-in. Oh, she yeah. sat in her room upstairs. Mm -hmm. She didn't have any, a husband or any suitors or anything. But what she wrote was pretty incredible. So she didn't know anything about that. She really didn't have any experience in the act of physical love or emotional or spiritual love. So if someone tells you, write what you know, 
you know, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't pay attention to that. Write what you want to write. And yeah, that's the most important thing. Write what you want to write with this caveat. Write what you're afraid of too. If there's some, if there's some subject that's scary to you or makes you anxious, write about it. You got to write about it. It's important. That's what I did with motherhood. Yeah, I was about to say that brings us right back to motherhood, which mm -hmm. you guys will be listening to at the end of this episode. And I, we, I know you're going to really love it. I really enjoyed listening to it myself. Um, the name of the record's called The Edge of the Middle of Nowhere. Uh, you can find me on my music page uh, on Facebook, Marco Teo Music. Teo is spelled T-E-L-L-O. Um, we also have a Brave Amigos uh, page. That's my work with Edgar. Awesome. My band, The Vibe Collective, is on there. Um, and soon to be Joe Baxter's, uh, regular Joe's will be on that music page. Um, and I would love to have my schedules on there. I keep adding dates. What's interesting now is I haven't really been trying to book shows. I haven't gone out and hit the, in, in a while and I just keep get, getting dates. Oh, that's I, good. I don't know how that's, I don't, <laughs> that's I'm, what you want. I can't believe it. You know, it goes up and down, but anyway, I really appreciate you having me on hey, the likewise. show. And, uh, it was a blast. We're shaking hands across. We're not touching the mics, you guys. And uh, also, if you're a songwriter, uh, whether you're male or female, uh, it really goes a long way if you're trying to impress that special someone. You say, I wrote a song about you. And they go, oh, my God, you did? What's it called? Uh, it's called Lick My Love Pump. And uh, you know, That's the one. Yeah. Anyway, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed... Uh today's podcast and join us next time. Thank you for listening.
Because